Welcome to Stigma Shakers Podcast. I am your host, Ali Hensley, author, speaker, and stigma shaker of the best kind. This podcast is all about shaking and breaking up taboo into digestible chunks, which we like to call our social smoothie. In this podcast, I will ask the difficult questions that can be hard to digest because everyone deserves a little balance in their mental health diet. And let's face it, folks, the only thing normal in this world is different. So my question to you, can we make truth the next biggest trend? Michelle Ahern is an Australian-born writer, comedian, and communication specialist. From poetry to blogs to her latest foray into the world of stand-up comedy, Michelle's writing and performing always hones in on the guts of life. From the true story of loss that gave way to a new lease on life, she has recently moved to Barcelona, Spain, where she's starting over in her 40s. Where there used to be a husband, a family, a home, a dog, and a job, she now has a stage and a microphone where she thrives on telling stories of exploring new countries, making new friends, and life inside a threesome. Welcome back, listeners, to the Stigma Shakers podcast. Today is a special one. If our listeners could tune into the voice notes exchanged over the recent months between today's guest, Michelle, and me, you'd immediately understand and hopefully relate to why this topic is so important and yet so hush-hush and stigmatized. Today, we are going to talk about leaning into loneliness with my gorgeous friend, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Ali. This is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, and just a bit of context before we dive deep into real life. Um, Michelle was my editor at TEDx Sydney when we both actually were living in Australia at the time. And we attempted, like you do, in busy life to meet up, but that never actually happened in the Southern Hemisphere. But Michelle did the loveliest thing of becoming to Reading. <laughs> beautiful delightful town um <laughs> to have our first our first coffee date and intro and i think ever since then our friendship has blossomed into something quite special so i i, I really value you so thank you for being here and um i'm sure that our listeners are going to have a chuckle hopefully and some real insight as you are now a stand-up comedian i am that is actually very terrifying to say out loud or do you know what actually I think it's terrifying when I say it but hearing other people say it there is a little moment where the the chest goes out a bit proud and I think oh I am doing something new (laughs) it's I think it's probably one of the most intimidating careers I think for so many people obviously public speaking and being funny like ever like funny is funny like people can be funny but I think performing Mm. that as your job it's a really big brave move and so how did you how did you get into that and because this is a really beautiful story and I not beautiful it can be actually quite brutal um but can you lead us up to the day that you chose to do stand-up comedian comedying yeah absolutely um yeah, absolutely right. It was a fairly brutal story. The start is, it, I promise it has a happy ending. But um, so last year, actually I'd been 
I've been doing creative writing all my life in various forms, just as sort of a side hobby, if you will. So, you know, while you're working away, I'd always have something creative on the side just to keep me stimulated. And for many years, that was writing poetry, but it was always quite heavy. And I thought, you know what, it's such a big part of my personality that is just laughter, laughing at things, with things, at myself. So I tried writing funny stories and it wasn't working. And then at the start of last year, I thought, you know what, I'm actually just going to have a go at writing some jokes, just something short form that might be easy. I've always been a huge fan of stand-up comedy and sketch comedy. And the jokes sort of just started coming or just felt like a more natural format. But I didn't have a lot to say, to be honest. It was more anecdotal. Like (laughs) I remember trying to write a joke about lactose intolerance and thinking, is there any, you know, who's actually tolerating the lactose? Like it was just this dumb play on words. Anyway, I didn't really have any content. And then a month later, I found out my partner, my husband of seven years, um, whom I'd been raising a child with, was having an affair. And that was not really necessarily the worst of it. It was more just how it was handled after that, to be honest. just It really was just like the lights were turned out on the man that I loved and the life that I had. Um, and there really isn't another way to articulate it than I've used this expression before, so I'm just going to use it now. I, honestly, one moment I was sitting in a house with a eight-year-old stepdaughter, a dog, a husband, and ocean views. And the next minute, um, I just felt like I sat, I was living on the set of a cancelled TV show that used to be about a family and everybody was gone and I was just sat there on the couch. Um, You know, like everybody packed up the set of friends and you're just (laughs) sat there on the couch and all the characters have left. And in the initial finding out about my husband's affair, was I found out about the affair and literally the next day I got COVID and this was still when we were doing isolation. So I had to go into isolation for seven days and then he got it the next day. So he went into isolation. So we were trapped in a house together for seven days with this sudden bomb that went off in the middle of our marriage and in the middle of our lives. And we talked a lot. We cried a lot. And you know what? I bloody laughed a lot, Ali. Like something just happened one day and I'm not going to go into the sort of the intimate details of it out of respect for everybody involved. But the more I found out about how the affair had taken place and various details, I just started laughing. I just thought this is so ridiculous. Like this is like just a really bad plot of a shit movie. Yeah. And as you say, it happened in the midst of a pandemic. So that has its whole new set entire of rules and of yeah of scenarios it look it forced for somebody like me to be honest with you with news like that in my life the first thing I probably would have done is shoved some clothes in a bag hopped in the car and driven off into the sunset for at least a few days anyway and not having that luxury or that outlet forced this vacuum of trauma grief dialogue therapy And we did actually do a couple of days of therapy in there as well um, to try and do our best to unravel things. But the long and short of it was during that week, I just found myself crying uncontrollably and then just laughing. And I was laughing so hard at so many small little things. And I just thought, I need to just write this down. I have no idea what this is. At one point, I actually did say to my husband, I said, this is so ridiculous. I said, I'm going to write a one-woman show about how fucking ridiculous this is. And he said to me, oh, you should. You're really funny. <laughs> and um, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, we'll leave that one there. But so 
in that moment of just like having so much taken away from me without my consent, I lost my family, I lost my partner, I lost a daughter, I lost everything. I became suddenly very determined to grab onto something and creativity felt like all that was there. And it felt like the only thing I could control as well. And that sort of then just started this seed in my head of, do you know what? I want to write a show about this or I want to write a story about this or I want to, I need to, I need a microphone in my hand. I need to stand up and talk about this. And it's so ridiculous. I think the funniness of it is actually going to be my way through this. You know, that it's so interesting you say that, and especially for creatives, because I think the first thing we do in a traumatic response is to kind of script our caption or script our book or script our whatever it might be. And if you have that creativity, and this can sound a bit wanky, it, it kind of is an outlet for processing the feelings. But obviously you went through this barrage of grief and a broken heart. And, you know, from the sounds of it, you had this beautiful setup in life that you did not see coming. Mm. And so your decision, well, what what was your decision? Oh, well, did you have a decision? Obviously, you did to some certain degree. Yeah, look, like in that moment, obviously, there was that period of time where I just sort of suddenly became adamant. Is this something I need to do or create? Or I think also... I felt like my voice had really been taken away from me and not been able to control the narrative of my own life. And I think that sense of needing to scream, but also I just, I just, I just wanted to be able to say, Hey, this is happening to me. This is happening to me and not necessarily say it in a public way, but it was just, that was the feeling was like, I need to talk about, what is going on and not, yeah, not in a blame way or a a revenge way at all, just a processing like I'm a very vocal person, you know, I really need to speak my mind in sort of, you know, that's how I work through feelings and pain is talking with friends, hence our voice note stream, (laughs) which is a a whole podcast in itself, I think, Ali. It really is. It's a book book or something. But, yeah, I think that I found a lot of solace in talking to someone. And, of course, there's overlap, I think, in our stories in the sense of Mm. starting over and and starting over in, let's be honest, like I don't want to put us into some weird little drop down, but in your 40s, I think when – you think you've got things mapped out, financial security, forever after love, all that kind of stuff. And then like me, you found yourself in a completely new country going, I mean, mm. this, is, this is a beginning, like this is, and that's a, that was a brave, bold choice. Do you look back now and think yeah. that? Do you appreciate what you did? I think I'm only really just starting to, to get a handle on it now. So obviously, so after my husband and I separated and a couple of months later I thought I need to get out of Australia and so I went to Europe for what was meant to be six weeks to go traveling and then six weeks became six months because I realized although there was the terrifying feeling of having lost everything okay and that's obviously in inverted commas everything um, although I felt like I'd lost all the things that mattered the most to me, what I suddenly realised is that I gained the one thing I'd not had for a very long time that's probably the most important thing to me in my life, and that's my freedom and my mental health. And to suddenly realise that, you know, 
it's kind of like that expression, like the unbearable lightness of being like there's a terrifying weight that comes with the obligation of marriage and motherhood and jobs and adulthood. And all of a sudden there was a weightlessness to my life that was very empowering and equally terrifying. And But I found myself travelling and being able to change environments was the only way I could process the trauma and the grief of everything that was. You know, and then I've, you know, my husband who'd said that he wanted to be alone in the world and that's why he was going to leave me, stayed with the other woman. A couple of months later, I found out they're having a baby. And that find and replace feeling was just utterly traumatic. Um, but all the while on my own journey, I was like, oh, I'm still adamant I want to try that stand up thing. You know, I promised myself I'd try that. And is there a show in this story? And so during my travels, I was in London. And I quickly just Googled, you know, how to do stand-up comedy. Um, and, of course, there's brilliant courses and things that are available in such a, such a vibrant city like London. And I just happened upon the most amazing um, comedy, um, comedy club, comedy mentor and class of fellow budding comedians. And so I spent five days in a course learning everything from how do you hold a microphone, what's your stage persona, do you know how to get heckled? Um, and really just sort of understanding the fine line between truth, authenticity, you know, how do you elaborate joke structure? And then I did my first five minutes and I'll tell you that week was the most me I've ever felt in my life. When you start out in your forties and you choose to change career, you jack in like the sort of like a financial regularity, whatever it might be. And it's it was during a video call of ours, if you don't mind me saying, where we were going, it's really fucking hard and it's really fucking lonely. And that to me just mm. my ears pricked up because, yeah, like I think a loneliness is, a, is such a common, scary, silent killer might be an extreme way of saying it. But yeah, like t talk through, because obviously you had this wonderful, buzzy, heartbreaky mm. introduction to the UK, but how did you coexist with that isolation? How did, what did you do with that? Well, I think that's where I think comedy offered me, obviously, the creative outlet of being able to say your story out loud and it be met with applause is a feeling you can't describe when you have felt unvalidated, disposed of or irrelevant so that that was a beautiful offering but then there was also the group that I'd shared that with and that was my first immediate connection with making friends so to speak whilst on overseas adventures and there was a group of us when you share such a vulnerable experience straight away like you sometimes I walk into a comedy club um so I'm obviously I'm living here in in Barcelona in Spain now where I've decided to settle but you'll sometimes you'll walk into a comedy club and there'll be another comedian that's about to go up just before you, you've never met each other and you're like, oh, hi, I'm Michelle. Oh, yep, I'm so-and-so. And then you go, oh, you're on tonight. Yep, you're on. Then I go on stage and I do seven minutes about being like the husband having an affair, traumatised, this has happened, he's trying to sue me for defamation. Like, and I tell like the most traumatic experiences of my life in seven minutes and you walk off and that person you've just met is like, oh, wow, okay, nice to meet you. Um, and you literally... It's just like taking all the things you're told to never say on a first date and telling an entire room of people as quickly as possible. 
To your point about the loneliness, it was funny because I said the word funny, not actually meaning funny. Um, it really caught me off guard because I'm somebody who can always comfortably speak about awkward stuff. It's not really a, a problem for me. I don't mind embarrassing myself. I don't or any of those feelings. And one day you and I were talking and I realized I was holding back from saying something. I noticed I felt embarrassed to say to you, Ali, I'm lonely. Like, and then I, as I realized I was embarrassed to say it, I thought that's really fucking interesting because I don't get embarrassed. And so there's obviously a stigma here, a vulnerability here. And then I tried to think, why is it that that's, it's embarrassing to be lonely? Because at this age, I'm 44 years old and there's this sense of like, if I'm lonely, it's for a reason. Like, like you assume people look at you like, why are you lonely? What did you do or what did you not do that resulted in you being alone on the other side of the world? You know, so there's one part of this story that's about empowerment and freedom. And the other part is like, I actively chose to have no one. Like, and then the repercussions of that choice. But for me also, it's an absolute necessary vulnerability I have to experience because essentially what I'm trying to do is rebuild a world I can live in because the last one I lived in doesn't exist anymore. And I want it to look different, smell different, taste different, sound different. And that's why I'm in a country where I don't speak the language doing stand-up comedy and living alone and trying to forge entirely new bonds and connections. Most people don't necessarily say to others, I feel lonely. And I think it's because, as you say, there is a judgment potentially, not to other people, but maybe onto themselves, that they're not likable, they're not lovable, they're not socially adequate, there is something wrong with them, there's a burden there. And I think, as you say, when you are a confident, outgoing person, to admit loneliness, and we know that, the, you know, we know the black dog of depression can have two masks. We know mm. that a lot of people, a lot of people can be the life and soul, but inside, you know, and I don't obviously want to get too maudlin about it, but I think it is really interesting because when I was speaking to a friend the other day, after speaking to you, where we vocalize that word and vocalize that feeling, I mm. said, I'd really love to, I'd really love to meet up for a coffee. I'm feeling really lonely. And then the next day I was crying down the phone to another friend saying, I am desperately, desperately lonely and I'm mm. doing everything in my power to do it. And I, I think not everybody's going to be able to get up and do comedy. Right. So I think what, what it'd be lovely to sort of like, maybe we can tease out together what does unhealthy loneliness look like? Like, what do we do that's not so great when we're feeling, you know, mm. booze, <laughs> sex? You know, there's booze. all these boys, girls. <laughs> it's, and, I mean, I, I think like when you say that, then the unhealthy loneliness, there's moments I feel myself literally sitting or not feel, I, I experience myself, I'll be sitting on the couch and I think I'm lonely. Do you know the first thing I do is open Bumble? Swipe, 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 swipe. Who can I talk to? Who can validate, connect, emoji me to make me feel like I'm relevant? As a woman, that's the easiest way to get affection or attention. Message a boy, you know, he's probably keen on some sex. Or like there's just that. 
it's it's an easy go to. I know that sounds kind of gross, but it, it, it's also some, having someone in real time, so to speak, again, on the other side of the world, and you've experienced this between Europe and Australia time zones. I mean, most of the time when I'm at my lowest, everybody I know is asleep. I literally have about two people in my time zone that I could call in a crisis. Um, yeah, so thanks, Bumble. You know, the flip side of obviously loneliness is like that forced forced isolation where you are, you know, forced to solve problems on your own. I remember that a couple of times, and we've both done this, but I do remember a day where I started to spiral about something early in the morning and I voice noted you and I said, Ali, I'm spiraling, I'm spiraling. This has happened. This person's messaged me and said this and that. Oh, I'm going to screenshot it and send it to you. Tell me what you think. And then I sort of sent the voice note through to you. And then I was like, no, don't screenshot the messages. Just process this on your own. Learn to move on from what's not serving you. Bumper sticker, bumper sticker, bumper sticker quote inside my head. But honestly, within a few hours, I messaged you back and I was like, I got this, Ali. I'm okay. I'm okay. Like, I feel like I've rationalized the bits that matter and the bits that don't. And then the second thing I wanted to say, because as you asked me just now about what are the unhealthy things we do when we're lonely, do you know what's so funny you say that? Because I think I'm still in the process of figuring that out. I'm, I'm in the middle of this right now. Like this is not, oh, hey, and I was lonely last year and now I'm great. Like I'm fucking lonely now, Ali. Like I'm sitting in a flat on my own. I just had a friend here from Australia for the last four days and I was just squeezing her so tight I didn't want to let go when she hopped in the cab this morning because not only have I not had a close friend here that I can talk to in real time, but I haven't got any close female friends. And I get along, I mean, my most of my close friends are, are guys and that's something that's always worked well for me in terms of my sense of humour and my personality and things like that. But again, like it was only just yesterday, I, I said to another close friend of mine who lives here in Spain, but not in Barcelona. And I said to him, oh, you know, I said, it's been so nice having my friend here. And he's like, yeah, Michelle, he's like, you need some more friends. And I said, oh, look, yeah, you know, I've got these comedy friends. I went to the beach with these guys the other day. And he's like, no, 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 Michelle, you need some female friends. And I was like, you're right. Like just, and not that it's about, you know, the female or the male friends, but for me, it's the ability to share, you know, with people that are on the same wavelength. As you get older, people always think you need to join a club or you need, because you, like, I'm not, I probably would troll a bar, but I don't want to do it alone. I live in a sleepy village where the demographic is double my age group. You know, it's not Bondi, it's downtown rural England. So it doesn't come so naturally mm. and I'm doing, and it's, it is a full, not a full-time job. That's a bit dramatic. Um, but it definitely is something that I have to try really conscious at if I'm going to work out the loneliness because it will not come to me. And I think as you get older, your confidence, if you've left a job, you left a relationship, it's left you, you know, friend breakups, whatever it might be, mm. it leaves you massively doubting. So the, the almost, it's so jacked juxtaposed because one moment you're like I can't be on my own at the moment and the other part is like but how the fuck do I change that you explored a new type of relationship <laughs> did you not in um I did yeah tell us about that Michelle yeah so when I left Australia and obviously uh, probably off the back of my husband having the affair I felt 
determined to reclaim my own sexuality and but also I couldn't I genuinely could not imagine myself in what I referred to as a one-on-one dynamic ever again I, I'm re- I remember proclaiming that to a friend as I left Australia to going I just can't picture it and then I said you know what I just want to go and explore you know I've heard about sex clubs in Berlin I you know I just you know and at the time I just thought okay this is just something I want to like push the boat out on a little bit you know, maybe it was an act of defiance in my mind or something or just reclaiming, reclaiming my sexuality because I'd been married and in a relationship for seven years and it really had taken a nosedive. So two weeks into my trip, I um, found myself on the beautiful island of Mallorca in Spain by accident. And being the Australian that I am, I went looking for a nice cold craft beer, thinking surely that's a thing, um, and found a... Um, a, a gorgeous little bar and restaurant that I wandered into that had a delightful Argentinian guy behind the bar. There was nobody else in there because, of course, it's 9pm on a Tuesday and the Spanish have not gone out for the evening yet. So it was just myself and this guy and we just got chatting and he was just out of an eight-year marriage and, as well and we were talking about life in the pandemic and things like this. And I was thinking to myself, this guy's kind of cute. Um, but then he mentioned his girlfriend and I was like, oh, that's a shame. And then a few minutes later, we were talking. I know. I was like, oh, oh, well. And then we were talking about dating apps. And he said, oh, my girlfriend and I actually have a profile on Tinder. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And he said, like, as a couple, we sometimes look for a third. And <laughs> we both often talk about this story now about what was that original conversation. But according to him, and this does sound very much like me, I looked off into the distance. He could see the cogs turning. And then I, I looked back at him and I was like, that's something I think I could possibly uh, explore. Um, I think that's something I could possibly try sometime. <laughs> I was in a job interview. And he said, that's fantastic. And he said, I'll speak to my girlfriend. And if she's keen to meet you, he said, um, you know, the three of us could get together for a threesome. It seems very kind. It does seem like, you know, the, the first few days in a new job, it feels like this. Uh, there is a sort of recruitment <laughs> And selection process, like it genuinely was. We'll discuss well, and it. And it was. I mean, yeah, yeah. And look, he, he'd said to me, he said this was something new for he and his girlfriend. They they'd only been dating for six months, but it was something that she'd done before. She'd been in in threesomes, and it was something new for them both as as a couple, though. Um, but he just said to me, he said, look, he said, you know, I've done life the conventional way, being married. This is new. This is exciting. And he said, but also, he guess. I get to flirt, I get to meet new people. And he said, but it's for the benefit of my relationship. It's not about me. It's about us. So I consider her in that. And I think about who would she like. Um, And, of course, it's a selection process for them both, so to speak. But the next day I get the most wonderful text message and I've screenshotted it and saved it. And it just says, great news. I spoke to Christina. She's keen on the threesome. Let's meet this weekend and have some drinks. And if it flows, it flows. And Ali, boy, did it flow. Yeah, I know we need to talk about loneliness, but I think I've got my little secret desire to understand throttling. I'd never been in a sexual relationship of any sort with a girl. I have a lot of sort of gay and lesbian friends and I've always been somewhat bi-curious. And I'm going to use that term as just a real sort of textbook term at this stage because I had not been in a sexual situation with a girl before. And when I met Christina... Um, and or none, and they would be fine with me using their real names because they're both very proud of our throuple life. Um, when I uh, that first night we got together, like just to sit down and have a drink, 
it was kind of like a first date but with a twist because the first thing we did was sit down and talk about sex. Like, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you want to try? And we actually all ended up with a list of things we've always wanted to do. So, you know, when it's like when you're about to have sex with the, with a person for the first time, there comes with its whole new set of nerves. Did you feel double pressure mm. or did you feel that you were going to be guided? You talk about something in your, in your comedy set, right, about Twister. Yeah. So, no, look, I didn't feel any more nervous than a normal date. I'd already met him and thought he was very sexy. So there's nothing more exciting than going on a date with somebody you know you find attractive. Like the only reason I get nervous going on a date is like, oh, if I get there and they don't look like their photo and I have to pretend I'm interested or back to pretend they're interested. I wasn't sure what she would be like. But again, when I sat down and just spoke to them and I was honest with her, I said, look, I've never been with a girl. I said, I might just honk your boobs. <laughs> and I actually used that expression, Ali. I said to her, I might just honk your boobs. And look, bless her, Christina, who's, um, she's German and Ernani is Argentinian. So we were this delightful, crazy mix of a melting pot of culture. Um, she just laughed. And to be honest with you, like what started out like you would on a normal first date or the first time that you sleep with somebody where it was just really very explorative. We were laughing a lot. Um, in some ways, the two actually took a lot of pressure off. It, it kind of felt more like I was hanging out with a, with a group of friends and then we had sex. It was kind of this less pressure, strangely. Like, it's not this intensity of one person looking to you and you've got to do all the things or be all the you things. You share the or, load. You're, you're, sharing, <laughs> literally. you're sharing the load. <laughs> I know we've kind of slightly detoured, but I think what was lovely about your thruple, who remain close friends of yours now, mm. whilst mm. not everybody is necessarily going to be seeking, you know, being sexually explor explorative is incredible, but everybody's going to have their own version of how to find or... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost dilute that loneliness. And I think it comes down to, it's down to blind faith and trust. I think sometimes when just because something has happened in our past a certain way doesn't mean that that's going to be a predictor of the future. And but there has to be some sort of, we're going to put it in that openness to the universe by putting ourselves into different experiences that are completely off course and a little bit scary you can completely rewrite what you thought the future would look like what would you say to that person maybe crippled by loneliness today i think things like the definition of a home or a family or um a job these are ultimate and all relationships are ultimately social constructs as is comfort as is discomfort as is loneliness and ultimately I think having to start over and realizing things aren't forever everything's fractious we're all fragile we're all going to die those things aren't new concepts and they're not a new reality. I'm just closer to being clearer on the fact that that's always been the case. So for me now, it's actually, I now view my life before as you have a certain lens 
of certainty that was never there anyway. So I think in terms of, you know, what advice would I give to somebody who is experiencing that loneliness is it's a shared experience. We are all lonely. We're all alone. We're, we're lonely in crowds. You know, I have friends in my life that are struggling with mental health that have beautiful friends and family around them. They've got their parents nearby. They've got gorgeous kids. They've got great jobs. It's not the circumstance of life that creates that loneliness. Of course, it always comes down to it's our perception of things. It's just about for want of like, you know, not using another bumper sticker statement. It really is leaning into the discomfort and just saying, do you know what? This earth is spinning, baby. Like it is, it's always been spinning. I can just feel it more now and I'm just learning to ride the rhythm of it instead of going, why isn't it still? Why isn't it still? I'm like, it's fucking moving. So move with it. One thing that I would always want someone to take away from this is that your loneliness isn't in direct correlation, if if at all, to the value you are as a lovable human. Because as you come back to the, the thing we were saying at the beginning, it's like, what is wrong with me? Why am I not enough? Mm. and we are that we are all enough and I think I am so grateful having gone through so many changes in the last couple of years too that I was open to what's developed with you and I um and going this is good this is the good this is this is a really lovely season Here at the Stigma Shakers podcast, our aim is to shake up and blend unique social smoothies for our listeners to digest around the topics of stigma and taboos. Now that we're coming to the end of our discussion, what ingredients, Michelle, would you want to have in your social smoothie? Oh, definitely vulnerability. I think, Ali, is the key ingredient to embracing your own messiness, connecting with others being willing to play, be creative and find new versions of yourself and ways of living. It all starts with vulnerability for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you could give your smoothie a name, what would it be? Can we call my shake the threesome? (laughs) We can call your shake the threesome. Oh, what a perfect shake stroke (laughs) smoothie. It's just a perfect, perfect blend. Vulnerability for a threesome (laughs) delicious and just our final question if you were to have your own headline tonight on the news and maybe around loneliness what would that headline be I think the one thing that sort of informs my comedy the names of the shows I try and come up with my jokes and where my head is at is all around honesty and truth but I also like swearing. So my headline would just be, you couldn't make this shit up. To everybody who's listening, if you are choosing to lean into loneliness, please try to find that one person you can trust with your darkest days and say, I'm lonely. And you'd be surprised about how many people go, me too. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. And I will send you a voice note probably in the next 30 minutes. But thank you for being open, honest, and of course, vulnerable. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ali. It was so lovely to talk to you and see your lovely face as we have these conversations in real time. Look at us. 